it is an absolute honor and blessing. I think I come alongside anybody who stands up here and has the privilege to speak from such a sacred desk. You know, the caliber of expository preaching that comes in week in and week out that we're privileged to be under, to be able to be in this position is nothing but humbling. But as I was preparing this sermon, I was working with Josh to write up what exactly I was going to say. It actually stemmed from walking alongside a brother in Christ whom I dearly have come to love. And we were going back and forth talking about the doctrine of assurance and salvation and our faith in Christ and how we can be assured of these things. And what dawned on me very quickly was it is not just for the person who is struggling to know if they are assured in Christ. But as I'm sitting there, I'm preaching to myself and I'm contemplating, I'm like, well, I need this just as much as that individual. I think we can all at times get so wrapped up in worldly things, and not worldly in a sense, but just life in general. And we can get to the point where we forget the foundations, we forget the basics to go back and think about the fact that if we are secured in Christ and we have a salvation that is never ending, to have assurance of that is a blessed, blessed thing. And to lose sight of that or to put it on the back burner is, you know, it can be a scary thing. And for us to be able to come alongside individuals who maybe struggle with this, I think we as mature Christians in Christ need to always be reminding ourselves of these truths so we can come alongside of them. So if you would turn with me to the book of 1 John, we're going to be looking at chapter 5 specifically. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. I've already given it away that tonight as we are looking, we're looking at the doctrine of assurance. And this is a topic of doctrine that often all Christians at one point in time or another, they have contemplated to a great degree potentially. This is often something that has been placed a great deal of thought upon, but some people by no means of themselves whatsoever is by grace alone that God grants them a great deal of assurance of their salvation. Now, there are other people on a different side of the spectrum who potentially deal with what seems to be a never-ending, soul-wrenching, nagging at the core of their heart problem, thinking that they will continuously and forever deal with these problems. I can say personally that I've walked in their shoes. I know what it feels like to feel as if God has removed his presence from me, and it has been a fearful and daunting thing, but... Often and on many occasions, this time of dread and darkness and potential fear, and I want us to see this tonight, that it can in the long run, even though it's hard to see it now, it can in the long run be a blessed thing, and it likely is a blessed thing that God is doing, causing you to go through these trials. It is often hard to see what exactly God is doing in the moment. I think a lot of times we often want to know what God is doing at all times, but we don't need to know what God is doing at all times. We need solely to trust our God to know that whatever he is bringing about and however he is bringing it about, it is perfect. His will is sovereign. We don't need to know the purpose right then in itself. We can know our God, and the more we know our God, we know that whatever he brings us through and whatever trials, they are good, and they are for our purpose to benefit us. And through these valleys of uncertainty, we can often find ourselves growing deeper and deeper in the rich truths of God's holy word. He allows us to see that indeed we are secured in Christ for all time, that it is a permanent thing. And there are a multitude of ways someone can find themselves in this seemingly never-ending cycle of doubt. But my hope this evening is that as God uses his 
word to open up our eyes and through his spirit, he will provide us faith in him that is even more emboldened and, and more vigorous for truth. For even if at times you yourself, my church family whom I love and we all love one another, if you personally in this room now find yourself to any degree, it's not just the person who is struggling to a massive dreadful degree, but any degree. At times if we waver in our trust and faith and our eternal outcome, even though we know we are secured, can we at times find ourselves struggling with this? Sure. And I want us tonight to look to Christ and to plead with the Lord that he would grant us a greater degree of our assurance. And if you find yourself in a place like this, looking at what J.C. Ryle, late theologian, the way he's put it, quote, nothing whatever, whether great or small, can happen to the believer without God's ordering and permission. There is nothing such as chance, luck, or accident in the Christian's journey through this life. All is arranged and appointed by God, and all things are working together for the believer's good, end quote. We must hold fast to these sovereign words spoken of our God and keep them in our minds as we move through the text tonight. All things, whether we personally deem, deem, excuse me, deem them beneficial in our eyes, work together for our greatest good and our greatest outcome, because it's not of us, it is of our God who is bringing them about. So tonight... Again, we will be reading from 1 John 5. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And let us hear the words of the one and true living God. 1 John 5, starting verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness which God has borne witness about his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have that life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, dear God, as I come before you, I pray that you would have your way tonight. Father, if you do not act on our behalf, we have no hope. It is through you and you alone that you grant assurance to your saints. Father, you do not need me in this world right now, but oh, how I pray that you would work through a fellow man to bring joy inside of your children. Father, give me a sense of peace and calm to speak your truth. May these words spoken glorify your son and his name all the more. Father, please pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, a Christian who is struggling, wondering if they are bearing true biblical fruit, again, like already probably self-explained, is a daunting thing. Many of us can say that we completely understand what it feels like to be in their shoes. We can potentially recall many of nights sitting alone wondering, am I truly saved? I can speak from personal experience that this is something I've had to deal with, and my heart goes out and it longs for those individuals who are in a related situation. We can often find ourselves asking the questions like, do I bear the genuine fruit of a Christian? Now, this is a question that all Christians or 
they should have at some point in time asked themselves. The reason why is because Christ has told us in his words, you will know them by their fruits. Someone who is so supernaturally changed by the word of God and by the gospel, there will be an evident fruit in their life. And so for a Christian to look at themselves and to say, do I bear the true, genuine fruit of a Christian is a good thing. Even in a hard situation, it is a good thing. Potentially, they're asking themselves, how can I know I'm actually saved? And attached to that and very paralleling to it is, how can I know that I cannot be lost? And why am I now riddled with fear over this? Prior in my life, could care less. But now my inner soul is feared and riddled with the potential of not having assurance of my salvation. Why is that? Well, these thoughts can continuously run through our heads, causing us a great deal of anxiety and worry. But momentarily, you know, it's not just us. Looking back at the Old Testament for half a second, King David, when he was going through his trials in Psalm 42, we don't know exactly what he was going through. But nonetheless, we can come alongside, similar to David, and see that, in fact, our souls can be in despair over difficult circumstances, and disturbed can almost feel like an understatement at times. This evening, as we break down a few points, I pray that this would work in a way that, as you go through these issues, if by chance you find yourself dealing with something similar to this, that you'll be equipped to get through it. And that also, if you don't find yourself struggling with this, I pray that this would all the more strengthen your assurance that God has granted you and your faith in what is to come for those who are in Christ Jesus, our hope that we long for, that one day we will see. And by God's grace, I pray that he would grant you, as you sit right here in these pews tonight, I pray that he would grant you the ability to see that you are personally secured in his son for all time. I believe that this is a point to be made and that it needs to be really contemplated. Assurance is not merely something that Christians talk about but never obtain, but in fact, it is something that God grants his children. Again, it's, it's not something that is so far out that we talk about and we long for glorification and glory with Christ, but one day we'll obtain our assurance to the fullest and most perfect degree, but here on earth we can talk about it, but we'll never actually obtain it. That's just not true. God grants his children assurance of salvation. And I think for any of us who have been granted a great measurable deal of it, it is a blessed thing when you can feel the presence of God. So before diving into our text set before us, I believe that it is important that we specify between two categories of persons that we'll look at tonight. Even though there are a multitude of different individuals, these two categories are specifically what we are going to be focusing on. We're going to look at the saved and the unsaved. My goal here tonight is to show the individuals who know that they are secured in Christ that it is something that is permanent and that we are going to leave here hopefully with joy in our Lord. So looking at the first category of people, those who are truly saved and even though they may or may not at fully times be assured of this at all times and can often be in despair over it, nonetheless, they are secured for all times. That's the first category. Those who are saved and even though at times they may or not be fully assured of this, and even can be in despair over it. Nonetheless, they are secured for all times. The second is those individuals who have full assurance when they should not have assurance at all. They profess faith in Christ, yet their life does not conform to the word of God in any manner whatsoever. It is important, I believe, that we make the distinction clear because the word of God tells us in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way in which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So it is clear that we need to be correct in our theology, correct in our understanding of justification, sanctification, 
glorification. We need to be solid in what we believe and how we're getting there. Our examination on if we are, if we are not saved, is not based upon ourselves. It should not be. It should not be based upon our feelings or mainstream Christianity that we see around the world. We must rely on the scriptures alone for our only basis and foundation for knowing that truth and, and not seeking to see ourselves in light of it, but to see Christ magnified all throughout the scriptures and trust in what God has decreed. And so first, I would like to lay out a scenario for you all to contemplate as it'll likely help us as we look to our text tonight and what the Apostle John is writing. It's going to deal with two men, man one and man two. We will compare these two men according to scripture. And from there, hopefully get a better picture of what biblical fruit and assurance looks like. And so we're going to start with man one. This man has possibly heard about Christianity a majority of his life, but potentially not. He was potentially raised up in a church. Maybe not. Maybe he was raised in a so-called Christian household. Nonetheless, man one is a professing Christian who goes throughout his life believing himself to be in correct standing with God. And that's important. We have to grasp that right there. He is a professing Christian who claims allegiance to Christ, who goes throughout his life believing himself to be in correct standing with God. Maybe he was told he was saved by a preacher from an altar call, which is so very common, and we see that all around our region here in the West. Or maybe he prayed a prayer asking Jesus into his heart, also very common, one of the greatest heresies that we still see actively today. Or potentially he even believes that his good will outweigh his bad when he stands before the Lord, and that's how he's in good standing and reconciled to God. All the while, man one looks like the world. He talks like the world. He acts like the world. He thinks like the world. And even though he professes to be a Christian, there is absolutely no fear of God in this man's heart. He does not care about the eternal state of his soul. He is not worried about living a life pleasing to God here and now. None of this. He's not worried about reading the, God's word. He neglects in every way to feed upon the scriptures daily to better understand what is called of him as a believer. He does not have a single ounce of worry of if he is or if he is not reconciled to a holy and just God who demands an account for sin, and that account will be given. Man one merely goes through life treating Jesus Christ like a bumper sticker attached to his life. He claims allegiance to it, but he never desires to grow in holiness, nor does he desire to live a life that would grow to be more like Christ. Now, Jesus... That man one has a mystical relationship with Jesus, something like a magical genie that he only desires to call upon when he needs something, when it benefits him. If, if he is struggling, then Jesus is potentially in his life. But beyond that, Christ is a complete afterthought to this individual. Man one looks at verses like 1 John 1, 6 and Romans 3.18 and does not care whatsoever, even though we're commanded by Scripture to examine ourselves, he does not care whatsoever to examine himself to see if he is truly saved and walking in the faith. 1 John 1, 6 reads, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. And it's clear that as Romans 3.18 declares, it says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. This, I believe I can confidently say, is the life of a false believer who should have no assurance at all ever of being in right standing with God or of ever going to heaven unless. And we all would attest to this unless there is hope, but unless he turns to Christ in repentance and true faith. This person does not possess an advocate with the Father as a mediator between themselves and God. No, this person is in a dreadful place, and, and it is a dreadful thing for them. But that is not our focus tonight, even though, and I want to state this, that is not our focus tonight, but our hearts should break for them. 
as, as Christians, we should long to see the lost one to Christ. But tonight, as we focus on a different set of people, and again, if, if God grants you those opportunities to share the gospel, it can be hard, it can be stressful, it can be difficult. Seize those opportunities. It might be something that you don't even see 15 years down the road, but you have potentially planted a seed that is eternal. You will see that reward in heaven one day, and it will be one of the glorious things I truly believe. But tonight I desire our focus to be on those people who have either one, they're struggling to know if they're saved, and at times like assurance of it, which has caused them a great deal of potential sleepless nights and grief, or B, I pray this edifies the individual who is not struggling with their assurance and their salvation, but they have been granted a great deal and measure of it and is always continuously and growing in this life by God's loving grace and mercy. And so now that we, which I hope have laid a foundation for the individual who we see, and I hope we would all attest to this, deems the life of a false convert or a false believer, someone who is not secured in Christ, let's turn our scenario now over to the other individual, man two. This man, similar to man one, maybe he grew up in and around Christians, but potentially not. Maybe he's heard plenty about Christianity before even. Maybe not. Maybe he's even professed to be a Christian for some time, similar to the the last scenario, but maybe not. But upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, something has changed. Something has actually physically taken place. It has changed inside of this person. Something has happened within man too. This man now has a legitimate and sincere godly sorrow for their sin for their personal sin, not just the sin around the world that they see. It is their sin. They have a true godly sorrow for their sin. This man can no longer talk like the world or act like the world or think like the world or walk like the world without being crushed under the weight of knowing he is sinning against an infinitely holy God. This is not to say that man too will be free from sin completely, for we know that this will only be accomplished when we are glorified in our eternal state with Christ, but now after receiving the gospel and placing his faith in Christ and in Christ alone for what he has done on the cross, this man can no longer habitually and willingly sin without care. I think that is a point that needs to be made and and, and really contemplated. This individual will not do it morally perfectly. They will struggle in this life without sin, but they will not be able to habitually and willfully, continuously sin without any care whatsoever. And so what are the characteristics in this man's life post-gospel presentation? Well, this man now desires to read the word of God, to know more about this God whom has saved him from his eternal wrath. He desires to know what God calls of him in his life, and he strives to grow in obedience to God's mandates. This is not going to be done perfectly again, but nonetheless, there is an act of desire to grow in obedience to God. Man too desires to belong to a local church similar to what we see right here in our eyes where he can begin loving and serving other Christians. And this is not done out of selfish gain or greed or benefit to self, but this is done out of a love and a sincere godly love for other believers in Christ. He desires to know of his responsibilities inside of his own household and to act them out accordingly. He now desires to walk in a manner that would be pleasing to God. And there has been an internal mind change. There has been a switch, a 180-degree switch in his thinking, in his previous way of thinking. He now thinks in a way that he wants to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates, to loathe sin. This, in return, results in an outward visible change to those around him, even if at times 
change can show itself slowly over a long period of time because the, the process of sanctification is different person by person. And we must be very, very cautious and gentle with believers who potentially are struggling. If, if you are being sanctified at any rate that is quicker than someone else, it is by God's doing alone, and we should be grateful for that and never take that into a, a way of self-boasting ourselves up in any manner. We need to come alongside them and, and pray with them and, and walk alongside them and help them to grow and be sanctified by God's doing alone. But this man now has a genuine concern for the state of his soul in eternity and for those who are lost around him. And it's not just a this individual is saved, and now that they're saved, it is a self-absorbed kind of life lived. No, they now see the individuals around them who are outside of the redemptive work of Christ. It hurts them. They want to see individuals one to Christ. This man has a deep longing to gain and retain the assurance that he is of God's elect and that he has indeed been saved. He possesses a hunger to grow into sanctification daily. It's not just a sporadic desire. It's daily desiring to grow in sanctification and to be more holy and set apart from the world which he previously belonged and pledged allegiance to. He desires to be in God's house each and every Lord's day to render and render, excuse me, to render and rejoice to God's praise and worship that he desires and he deserves. He thirsts to sit under biblical expository preaching, which will allow him to have his soul fed week in and week out, to daily be in the scriptures, growing in his knowledge of who God is and what he has done for him personally and for all of humanity throughout redemptive history. These precious things mentioned here, dear saints, if after examining yourself and you see that these are found in your life and they're evident and they're true, I pray genuinely that you see this is a work that God has done in you personally. I want to make emphasis on this, that this is not to say that at times we will not struggle to desire these things as we ought to. For no one can walk in a perfect manner before God, and these things will fluctuate in degree at times within our own personal lives, but nonetheless, they will begin to be a common, visible thing in your life. My desire is that as we examine ourselves as true believers in Christ Jesus, and as we see and affirm that these things are in our lives, that you would be overflowed with joy. That is my heart's desire tonight, is that you would come and leave with a sense of joy in your salvation. And let me assure you, in case you do find yourself contemplating your salvation, I can confidently say, after being around some of the hardest pagans I've ever been around, it, it is difficult, but nonetheless, when I look in their lives, in most cases, pagans who do not know Christ do not fret over the state of their eternal soul being judged by God. That is not a common factor that you find in the world, that the world who hates God and sins against God and loves to go against him in rebellion, that in quiet, they're actually fretting the fact that they're going to be judged by him for eternity. No, it's, it's, it's often not the case. Someone who is unsaved does not care if they are reconciled to God or if their sins have been paid for. They mock Christians. They make fun of us. They laugh in the face of God. And that is a fearful, fearful, fearful thing. But I hope this brings a sense of joy and allow me to bring a glass of cold water in the desert to you, whether you are struggling with a lack of assurance or not, whether you are struggling or not. Your concern as a Christian for your soul, your longing to always obtain and have biblical assurance of your salvation, and your desire to know if you bear the fruit of a true Christian, that is the fruit of a true Christian. That is evidence that God has done a work inside of you. Prior to most of our conversions, we could care less if we were saved, but the second God saves us, I, like possibly you, long to know for sure. I long to know for sure if I was saved. 
And I believe that you, as you sit here tonight, can take great comfort and joy in knowing that the Christians around you, our family, as we see right here, who love and care for you, who see that these genuine characteristics, concerns, and desires, and they believe that this testimony that you have professed and the conversion that you have professed is a true work of God in your life, if we see and believe that in one another, they would never attempt to give you a sense of false assurance. If they truly believe that you were living outside the redemptive work of Christ, I don't believe any Christian in here, as I look into your eyes, would ever attempt to give someone a sense of false assurance. One, what that would do for the Christian. We, we know the sincerity. We know the severity of that. And number two, we know the outcome for that individual. If they play Christian forever, the outcome is eternal damnation. And so I don't believe anybody who is truly in Christ would ever desire to give someone a sense of false assurance. Purposely. I know of people who have been granted assurance fairly quickly, but they too themselves have been low at points. And on the other hand, I know people who have struggled for an extended, extended period of time with this. Now, this can take time to work through, but God is faithful to be with us all the way, and he commands that we come alongside these individuals as well. I want to emphasize on another point. Friends, you are no more in control of your preservation than you are your salvation. I'll say it again because I want us to really contemplate that. We are no more in control of our preservation through this life until we hit glory than we are of our salvation, which got us on that road to glory. You can bring nothing to the table in regards to your salvation other than your sin. So in what manner could you ever partake in keeping yourselves saved? Christ will keep you for he is the only hope in this. And when contemplating if you're truly saved, think of it in two ways, which I hope can be of comfort to you. The first is if I cannot save myself, Yet I do believe that Christ saved me, believing that I'm not a part of this in any manner whatsoever. I can take great joy knowing that God cannot lie. And Christ has decreed from all eternity that all whom the Father given him, he shall lose none. That doesn't mean one or two on the side. That means none. None whom the Father has called will ever be lost. The second point is, and this is a story not of my own, I, I believe it was Paul Washer that I was listening to at one point in time, and I couldn't find the video to get it word for word, so I'm paraphrasing back in my head. But the analogy was fitting for this. So said a young man walked up to a pastor in despair, and the pastor asked him, well, what's wrong? The young man opened up about his lack of assurance of his salvation, and he encouraged the young man to go ahead and run back to the life he once lived, to flee to the old sinful nature, disregard the truths he's come to know, and live a life with boundaries that are not there. Live, sin, die for who cares? This is all we have, right? The young man cried out to him, well, I can't. And he encouraged the young man once more saying, no, seriously, go for it. Go, run back out into the world, live the life you once lived, be merry, and go for it. The young man cried out again, I, I can't. And he asked him, why? Why can't you? Why can you not run back to that life you once lived? Well, because of God, because of the Bible, because I'd be sinning against God, because of truth. Friends, that is, the, that is the life of someone who has been redeemed in Christ. The fruit of a soul who has been so supernaturally changed to conform to the image of Christ. An individual cannot just run back to the life they once lived. There is a reason why if I open the church doors right now and I told you to run and be merry and sin, live a life in rebellion against God, you would likely, number one, be appalled, and I would hope so. And number two, you would rebuke me from where you sit. This is because your soul can no longer freely flee from God in a continuous and rebellious manner without the weight bear down on you 
of the God whom you have come to know and love and who loves you. You love him because he first loved you. You cannot run back to this life of rebellion. It's not possible. The opposite of this is someone who is not saved, who has not been forgiven, for they would likely feel no shame in taking me up on that offer. This should sadden us for those individuals, but as much as it should sadden us for them, I pray that this would ignite a flame of gladness and joy for us who realize that we could never run back to the life we once lived, even if we wanted to, for it is not because of ourselves, but it is solely because God will not. He will not allow you to. He literally would not allow you to. For God to say that you can be lost and run back to your old ways would be for God to go against what he has decreed from all eternity. God cannot lie, and so therefore this cannot happen. So even if you find yourself at times straying to the left or to the right, nonetheless, Christ will bring us back. He will grab that one lost sheep and, and put us right back on that narrow path. Matthew Henry commentates on the verses we're about to look at, and we are about to get into our verses. Quote, he has a witness in himself, which puts the matter out of doubt with him, except in hours of darkness or conflict. But he cannot be argued out of his belief in the leading truths of the gospel. End quote. Now, no matter the situation, the argument against your faith, or what the world brings you, you can never, as true believers in Jesus Christ, walk away from the faith that you now possess. And so now that we have laid a, what I hope to be a firm foundation of what a true Christian and what a false Christian looks like, I pray that this would be granting you peace and taking comfort in your salvation. So look with me back at verse 10. Verse 10, it reads, The one who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the witness which he has borne, which God has borne witness about his Son. Now, the text here does not say the one who believes in the Son of God may have this witness in himself. No, it says the individual does have the witness in himself. And now we have just recently looked at previously with the life and characteristics of someone who believes in the Son of God. So keeping that in mind, what is the witness? And your translation may say testimony, and sometimes it's, it's rendered down in, in study to evidence, witness, testimony, evidence. What is this witness spoken of here? The one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, calling upon him for salvation, who has been regenerated, has been born again with a new spirit, the life-changing transformation and the life lived thereafter by a Christian is an inward and outward proclamation of who God is. And this is a witness of not only who God is, but who God said his son is. And what his, and what his son said and did, it is true. The Holy Spirit now lives in each one of us as true believers in Christ. And we see that to be true in Galatians 4, 6. Turn with me real quick. I know it's only one verse that we're going to look at, but I think it is very very important that we see that this is in Scripture, that the Spirit is in us. Galatians 4, 6 reads, And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Turn back with me to 1 John, if you would. It is by God's grace alone that he causes a person to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the one that even grants the faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this testimony of God's mercy and grace is tremendous. We can never 
fathom to the greatest degree of what is being taken place in a conversion of a lost soul. And you, dear Christian, as you flee to the cross daily, it is a living testimony of who God is and what he has done and the power that he has. That you, as you are a living being with a heartbeat and a pulse, blood running through your veins, yet you were spiritually a corpse. You were spiritually dead. You had no ability whatsoever to bring yourself to life in Christ. And I know that we have medical professionals inside of our congregation who could attest to this. If a person is deemed clinically dead, no pulse, completely dead, laying on the table, and through the means of modern technology and medicine, they're brought back to life. Did they have any part whatsoever in the act of bringing themselves back to life? I think the clear answer would be no. They, they partook in nothing. There was no act of force from their part of bringing themselves back to life. And so how much more the unregenerate sinner who is spiritually dead? And we know this to be true in that they are truly dead because the Bible tells us that man is sinful from birth, from nature. They are, they are there, passed down from generation to generation like a spiritual cancer. That through one man, sin entered into the world and, and through sin, death. Man, by nature, is rebellious against God. Man flees from God in every way, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That was once us. There is no possible way that man can be reconciled to a holy God who will not turn the blind eye and pardon sin. Not without granting this person the faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and giving the Son to them so that they may have eternal life like our text shows here tonight. We bear the witness as Christians to this truth as the first half of 1 John 5, 1, just a few uh, verses back. The first half of it reads, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Looking back with me at verse 10, the middle half, it reads, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. The world around us claims Christ is false. In claiming what he did and continues to do is inaccurate and a false claim, it is not only grievous in their sin and their error, it often can be at times just too quickly passed over on the severity of it. This person is calling God Almighty a liar. They blaspheme God in their attempt to disprove his existence and his authority, all the while storing up for wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. The latter part of verse 10 shows us, if you look with me, why they do this and how they do this. It says, because he has not believed in the witness which God has borne witness about his son. Now, God, through general revelation and creation all around us, and through special revelation, his word that we can physically hold, he has given a witnessing testimony about himself. We have been provided all sufficient evidence of who his son is. The person not believing this witness, they have no hope, they have no joy, they have no peace with God and eternal life. But you, you who can hear my voice, you who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you can take confidence that what Christ has done on your behalf is forever, and you can take him at his word, and you must take him at his word. The Lord delights in seeing his saints grow in maturity and in wisdom, and often, and listen on this, often it starts with trusting in the promises of God regarding to your new position with God. Most of the time it starts with coming back to the basic foundations and realizing what your new position is. When you cross over into eternity, unlike the lost individual who will stand next to and say, well, it was, it was Christ plus me. 
It is us standing behind Christ and saying it is, it is only of him. It is only the Father who will see Christ on our behalf and the blood that we are covered in. It has nothing to do with us. And we at times can even struggle to comprehend the gospel in all its complexity, and I understand that. I've heard it said for eternity of eternities, we will barely reach the foothills of trying to understand the complexity of the gospel and what has truly been done on our behalf. But even we can feel, how can God do this for a sinner like me? The reprobate, wretched man that I am, how can someone do that for me? For we all know ourselves better than anyone else. You in as you sit here tonight, you know yourselves better than anyone else will ever know you outside of the Lord. We know the sinful nature in which we've been saved. We know the extent in which our depraved minds can go. And we can often find ourselves struggling to, to deal with that or struggling to find ourselves dealing with the thought of our assurance and salvation or lack thereof because of these situations. But if we do not give a close eye, watch, and lead a, a close eyes watch to what is happening really quickly, we can find ourselves going from a godly introspection, looking at ourselves in a good way, and not that we are good, but a, a healthy way that a Christian should be examining themselves. And then we can turn that into a morbid introspection. A quick example of that, or excuse me, definition, is the difference between a godly introspection and a morbid introspection is faith in God versus faith in ourselves. At the basis of it, that's what it's faith in God versus faith in ourselves. This can relate specifically to looking at your salvation and the preservation of your soul by God, not by looking at the cross, but looking at yourself. You can fall into a morbid introspection when you continuously look at yourself and don't look to Christ. I think Josh and I don't know the uh, Puritan or Reformer who he's quoting, but it was every time you look at yourself, look to Christ ten times more. How true that is. If not, you can find yourself in a situation like this where you're looking at yourself a thousand times more in Christ only once, and that can be a long and hard road to come out of if not careful. And so we have to keep a close eye watch on that. But look not at yourselves, but at what Christ has done in your life to find the joy in this. One theologian writes, concerning the doubting of the saint's assurance, he says, quote, Can you not remember something that the Lord has done for you in times past? Some promise applied, some manifestation of his presence, some look of love, some softening touch of his gracious hand, which melted you into the dust and brought sweet peace and assurance with it. It might not last long or be very deep, but it was an evidence when felt that you belong to Christ. You remember the time and the circumstances, the darkness, distress, and bondage before and the deliverance into sweet liberty then enjoyed. But still you are dissatisfied. You want the Lord once more to appear. You want another smile, another word, another look, another promise, another testimony. And without it, your soul often sinks down into doubt and fear. Now, this is the path in which most of God's saints walk, end quote. This is often the pattern of our Christian lives. We see the love of Christ and peace sweeps over us in an instance. And then just as quickly a wavering sea of doubt can set in and before you know it you can potentially feel as if God has removed his presence from you as quick as it comes as quick as it can go but I want you to realize something that number one you're not alone the Lord is always with you in this you are not alone because we as a church family we are always with each individual who is a true believer in Christ to come alongside them in this and then number two, I believe that there's probably more Christians than they would like to admit have dealt with this or are currently dealing with something like this. And so 
how do we fight the lack of assurance? And this is precisely what we must do in these times. Well, we fight it, but not in ourselves. I think that's key. We do not fight it in ourselves. We must go and be alone with God. Cry out to our God. And I want to say that crying out to our God, not a random God. It is our God, not just the God of the Bible. We have been redeemed. He is our God, who we can boldly go before because of Christ and what he has done. We pray that he would grant us peace within our hearts, that he would bestow upon us an assuring presence of his love and his mercy. This is not only a desire that we should do, but is commanded by sacred scripture. Very well-known text in the Bible. I won't have you turn with me. I'm going to read it real quick. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, friends, this is a blessed promise that God says. The peace of God will, will, and anybody who's been in our Sunday school knows that I love the wills inside of Scripture. It will guard our hearts and our minds, but we must flee to the Lord for his help. For we can offer no peace to ourselves. We and ourselves can offer no peace to ourselves in times when we are in need of a guarantee of our salvation. There comes a point when dealing with these worries that it's not that you have to stop. You must stop and look at the cross. And we can all have emotions and anxieties and, and doubts and worries and fears that sway back and forth, but one thing is for certain, God never changes and it is impossible for God to lie. God never changes and it's impossible for God to lie. You have to hold on to those truths. This should bring us a great deal of calmness and tranquility, knowing that we can go to his word, we can take him at his word and the promises that are in scripture. We must do this because it's the only thing that is concrete and true. This is the only thing that is concrete and will never fail you, especially when we are in a fog and despair and we're not thinking clearly. You find yourselves in a uh, whirlwind of despair, and often you, it's as if you can't even see past a fogged veil, and rather than trying to find your way through it, look down to the scripture, see what God has said, and then look up to him and praise him for it. That alone, God uses to bring people out of these situations. I want us to dive into some of these truths where in Hebrews 6.18 it says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Upon conversion, God promises to place a new heart inside of the believer. We know this to be true because we look around and we see the radical change often done in us as Christians. No, Josh has mentioned multiple times this text, but nonetheless, it, it is perfect to put in here of Ezekiel 36, 26, which says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. This new heart is evidence that God has truly done a supernatural work inside of you as a believer. This new heart will cause a person to look like man too, but let me be very, very clear when I say this. This does not mean moral perfection, for no one could ever live in a perfect manner. This is precisely why we must look to Christ in these times, for he is the one who held the law perfectly on our behalf. John 19, 30 says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Being led to the place of his crucifixion, bearing his cross, he gave up his life as a sacrifice once and for all for the propitiation of sins where he cried out, it is finished. Those who believe in his name may and would be granted eternal life. The Bible tells us in Acts 4, 12 that there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Not that we just, we can, but as his called of his elect, we must be saved by Christ. Jesus told us he is the way and the truth and life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. And that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Grace that is unmerited and undeserved. Grace is not something that you work for. Grace is not something that you can earn, that you can do anything. Grace is merely my love for you. I will gift you this. That is what God has given us. And we see that to be true in Ephesians 2.4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And let me remind you, we are not redeemed by a dead king. If he died, it was all for nothing. He lives. He said he would rise and he rose on the third day. He sits at the right hand side of the Father interceding on our behalf currently as we speak. These truths spoken of here in Holy Scripture, the Holy Spirit uses to convict the unregenerate sinner of their sinful nature and their current standing before a holy and just God who demands an account for sin be given, a God who will not overlook wicked men and their sins because that would cause him to be a corrupt and an evil judge. But through faith in Christ alone for what he did, we as Christians, we can take and have great assurance that your sins, past, present, and future, they have been paid for. Christ didn't say it will be finished and then you will be able to sin and fall away from me. It is finished means past, present, future, all sins have been paid for for all eternity. The debt has been settled with God through Christ on your behalf and those who profess genuine faith in Christ according to the gospel can take joy in knowing that those who have been called by God, they come. Number one, they come and they can never be lost. And I believe that we must not look at our faith but the object of our faith, which is Christ. It is not the amount of faith that saves an individual, for even the faith of a mustard seed is genuine faith. Look with me momentarily. I know we just came out of the book of John not too long ago in our systematic preaching, but look with me at John 6. Because I think it's important that we see as individuals who can at times contemplate our eternal security. I want us to see with our eyes the words of our Lord and what he has said about never losing our salvation. John 6, uh, let's go to 36. John 6, 36, it reads, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, even when we go into low spots of doubt or anxiety, and you must hold fast to this, your emotions cannot and will not ever be able to alter the will of God. No matter what you feel, you cannot alter what God has decreed and the promises that he has placed before us in sacred scripture. And there is a reason why, as true believers, we have a longing and aching desire to know of our salvation. And this is because God has placed that inside of the new believer. Prior, it's not there. But once God has done his work in us, now it is embedded with us. And the opposite of this, and hopefully, again, this brings you joy. We long for those who don't know this. But for us, it should bring us joy that we don't see this in our lives. First John 2.19 says, they went out from us. But they were not really of us, for if they were of us, they would have remained with us. 
but they went out so that it would be manifested that they all are not of us. Those who profess faith in Christ, but their lives reflect nothing of someone who has been saved by God, they will expose themselves. They will likely go apostate, leave the church, and flee from the faith in the church, and may not lose an hour of sleep over it. And those who have falsely claimed conversions to Christ, even if they pull the veil over our eyes for an extended period of time, even to the point of death, if we as a church standing guard, if we for some reason don't catch it, nonetheless, they will give an account for that. They will stand before a holy and just God where it will be found out that you cannot pull the veil over the Lord's eyes. And so rest assured that your potential anxiety of wanting to know if Christ's atoning work is for you, even if at times it's possible that it's hard to work through, it is being used by God for your good, to grow you to utter dependency upon him and to edify you and mature you and to take joy in trusting him. Look with me briefly at verses 11 and 12. It reads, back in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, the witness is this, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have that life. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God alone for your salvation, take confidence in that God promises that you have been granted eternal life. That is a simple thing that we can read past, but it is everything for the Christian. We who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God has decreed and told us this promise, we have eternal life. There is no doubt that Satan longs to see a believer struggling with the lack of concrete assurance, struggling to know their eternal state. He dreads hearing one child of God professing that Christ is King of King and Lord of Lords. Give him no ground to stand on and have certainty in the word of God, for it is true. There are a multitude of false religions that offer false gods and false hopes and false crises that offer false salvation and false glory to come, but this is not what our hope is in. Our hope is in the one true God, the only living God, in his son Jesus Christ, who we have, and by having him and believing in him that he is the son of God and having him, we have eternal life and a glory to come that is unspeakable. I think of any of us if we just half a second of trying to describe what it is going to be like. I know I've sat and pondered multiple times, I'm sure Josh and Jason have, to try to explain to somebody what is to come. There are words can't even, I can't even begin to explain the thought of what is going to come for us who are in Christ, the glory to walk in the presence of our Savior. And so what is the purpose of this text that we are looking at? Looking at verse 13, we see that the Apostle John has written these things specifically to us and for a specific reason. It reads, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Church, we pray for those who do not have the Son as believers. We know the eternal outcome of their souls. But this text should invigorate us. The Apostle John is clearly stating here that he is writing to believers. And all who I look out right now and see are professing believers in Christ. And so he is writing to you. He is writing to me. We are sons and daughters of God, believing in the name of the Son of God and, and the witness born of him by the Father. We have that promise of life unending. And if you find yourself struggling to hold fast to these promises, cry out to God. Go to your Father in prayer. Cry out to him in the same manner that we see in Mark 9, 24 with the father who pleads to Christ to help his son. He pleads with him, and Christ replies, telling him, all things are possible 
to him who believes. The father of the boy then replies in a way that I think we should all take heed of, which is, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. If you wrestle in holding fast to these promises, yet believe them, plead with the father through prayer that he helps your unbelief and grant you the ability to see and believe these truths without wavering in your mind. And so as we conclude, church, I pray tonight that you have been able to rightly examine yourselves, first and foremost, according to the text, and see that you have an eternal advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, who takes joy in granting his children an abundance of assurance of salvation, and that he will keep them and never let them go. For the scriptures proclaim in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Take God at his word. Never settle with the lack of assurance, for we can be confident in what lies ahead of us. Allow this to embolden your labor for Christ. Long to see brothers and sisters glowing with a vibrant assurance of their salvation, one which we are eager to see when our faith is turned to sight one day. And I'll leave you with two quotes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It says, If you are asking for some kind, assuring word to soothe your fears, turn to the Bible, for there it is in the very word you need. The God who has been sufficient until now should be trusted until the end. If you'll stand with me to pray. Father, I do not know what anybody in our presence right now could potentially be dealing with. But specifically, Lord, if it is dealing with a lack of assurance or if we waver to any degree, no matter the measure of it, Father, please, through the words that were spoken tonight, grant your children a greater sense of their eternal security and their ability to hold fast to that and to take joy. Father, again, you do not need us. Our church, you don't need us, but you are so gracious to bless us in so many ways. And I pray that through us having that assurance of our salvation, it would embolden us to labor on your behalf, to go for the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Lord, be with us as we go into the rest of our week. Allow these truths to be sunken into us, that we would meditate upon them and that we would reach out to one another. We who love each other, your, your bride... I pray that we would come alongside of one another to know each other to such an intimate degree that we would know if someone is struggling and be confident to go to them and confide in them and, and to help work through these things. But ultimately, Lord, it is your word. Draw us to your word, which is truth. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.